and uh, we'd love to get you plugged in. All right, Philippians 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Years ago, there was a, a British actor named Michael Wilding, and he once was once asked if there was any uh, particular traits that set actors apart from other people. And this was his response. He said, without a doubt, you can pick out actors by the glazed look that comes into their eyes when the conversation wanders away from themselves. <laughs> but uh, if we're honest, all of us can be a bit like that, right? Oscar Wilde once said, Come over and sit next to me. I'm dying to tell you all about myself. Myself. Greatest barrier to God's work in my life is myself. Greatest barrier to the health of the church is is myself and my self-centers. Greatest barrier to the advance of the gospel through the church is myself. When I become inwardly focused, and preoccupied. It hurts the work of the gospel in me and the work of the gospel through me and the work of the gospel through all of us. Now, that's what Paul feared for the Philippian church. Remember, he wrote them a letter to say, thank you, you're doing so well. It's a very healthy church. They were participating in the work of the gospel and the work of the gospel was being powerfully effective in transforming their own lives. But he was beginning to see that there was a threat entering into the church and that was that, that they were beginning to turn inward and think first and foremost and primarily about themselves. And that frightened Paul. Because if they turned inward, then the work of the gospel in them would stop and the work of the gospel through them to the nations would stop. And so Paul said, I want to exhort you to unity to getting over yourself. Remember at the end of Jesus' life, right before he went to the cross, he had all of his disciples with them, and he prayed the most moving prayer that's recorded in the entire Bible. We call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And he said this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is these 11 who are sitting here, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. See what he's saying? He's saying, I, what I want them to experience is the very unity that the Trinity has experienced for all of eternity. That they would be unified, Father, as you and I are unified with one another. That they would experience that for this one purpose, so that the world would know that you sent me. When when the the church is unified, we experience the power of the gospel in our own lives personally, but also the power of the gospel going out from us to the world. And so that was great. Paul's great concern for the church. It was Jesus' great concern for the church that we would be one and in our unity that the world would see that Jesus is the solution for the problems of the world. So I want you to read with me, beginning in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 2. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. When we become one and the gospel becomes the center of our lives, then the gospel works in our lives and works through our lives to all of the nations. I need you to advance the slides. So, Thanks, guys. Okay. Paul's first point is this. When we become one, we give our lives to the gospel, 
we yield to the gospel. The gospel becomes powerful in us and through us. Notice where he starts chapter 2 with this powerful exhortation to unity. Verse 2, let's read it again. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What do you observe? Same, same, one, one. Paul is pushing them toward unity. Let's unpack these words just a little bit. He says, make my joy complete first by being of the same mind. Now I want you to make, if you're taking notes, note this word in particular because Paul's going to repeat it three or four times in this paragraph. When he talks about the same mind, what he's talking about is the orientation of their lives. He's talking about their preoccupation or their fixation. He's saying, be pointed in exactly the same direction. Be of the same love with one another. That is a love that knows no boundaries. We talked about this in chapter 1. A love that is overflowing in doing good for one another. Maintain the united in spirit. Literally is be same-souled. And then he repeats that word one more time. Intent on one purpose. May the orientation, the fixation, the preoccupation of your lives be pointed exactly the same direction. Which is this. That you are mutually committed to the work of the gospel in your lives and through your lives to the nations. That that would become the one preoccupation of your lives. Because, church, there is no other hope for the world than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, in verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is the greatest problem that is facing our society today? It's that men and women are separated from God. They don't know God. And consequently, they can't know themselves. And they can't interact properly with one another, their their family, their neighbors, or their nations. Because Jesus Christ is the one who heals all that. He reconciles us to God and then he reconciles us to one another. The gospel is the solution for the problems of mankind. So when we put the gospel at the very center of our lives, mankind can experience what mankind needs most, which is reconciliation to God. And Paul says, really, we should know that because we've already experienced it. That's verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, Paul's not questioning if there's any encouragement in Christ. These are rhetorical statements. What he's really saying is this, therefore, since you have encouragement from Christ, since you have consolation from the love of God, since you have fellowship and unity in the spirit, since you have affection and compassion from God, you've experienced the power of your gospel in your life. Therefore, live as one by putting the gospel first in your lives. Now, practically speaking, what does life look like when the gospel is first? All of us put something at the center of our lives. It's some person or persons or it's some pursuit or some passion that's at the very center of our lives and we order all of life around that thing or that person, that pursuit. All of our time and our energy, our thoughts, our our preoccupations become ordered around that pursuit or that person. Let me give you some illustrations. It may be uh, this morning that if you're honest with yourself, you say, really the center of my life is my family. And oftentimes, even in the church, and certainly in broader culture, you're going to be applauded. Way to go. Putting your family at the very center of your life is a really noble thing. But the family actually shouldn't be the center of your life. Which almost sounds like blasphemy in the church. (laughs) I realize that. But your family should not be the center of your life. Jesus Christ in the gospel is the center of your life, and you build your family around the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Your family is a gift from God to you so that together you can follow Jesus Christ. Together you can reflect the, the character of God and the, the love of God and, and the very nature of God and his love for the world. Together you can be disciples and you can be disciple makers. And God has given you a family for that purpose. Not that the family is the center, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is the center. You build your family around Jesus Christ. Or maybe uh, you're actually uh, not in your own family right now. But you're, you're looking to start a family, and your choice of a spouse has become the center of your life. Your thoughts, your desires, your longing. You, you enjoy your job, or you enjoy school, you enjoy these things, but really what grips your heart is that future spouse. And that's the longing that has grabbed your heart. That can't be the center of your life. The gospel has to be the center of your life, and you build that pursuit around it. Because right now, you may be looking for attraction. You know, i, I got to find somebody. Here's my list. I have my list, and it's written, and I get it, because when I was in college, I had a written list, too. Right? So you've written it out, you know, and it's attraction. I need to be attracted to that person, and I really want to have a lot of similar interests and hobbies, and I really I want a sense of humor, and, you know, I want somebody who wants to uh, live in the mountains and ski, and I want, you know, and you've got all these things, you know, that are down on your list, right? Right? You, you know... Okay, maybe you haven't written it down, but you know that you have a list. But what if you said, no, first and foremost, I want to marry someone who will help me love Jesus more. And then I can help love Jesus more. And we may or may not share lots of hobbies, but if I can live my life with someone who wants to follow Jesus and make Jesus known among the nations, that's the center of my life. Or as uh, my wife used to say, you just run really hard after Jesus and you look to your right or to your left and find that person who's running alongside. Or maybe the center of your life is, uh, it's a cause. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I love still uh, having college students in our community and I like being in a church to watch college students is because students, you still really believe that your life can have an impact on the world. And I believe that too. And so I love being involved with students. And so students tend to be really cause-oriented. Maybe you're, you have a cause, and really that cause is what grips your heart and your mind and your soul, right? That's what you talk about with all your friends. It's what you post about on your social media, right? That's really what's really excited you. Maybe, maybe your cause is racism, which is you know, one of the blights on humanity continuing since the Tower of Babel, right? That people look down upon one another and they abuse one another because of their differences between, and you've decided that's what I want to give my life to. Well, I want to ask you, can you solve that without Christ? No. Any change will be superficial. Because when somebody believes in the gospel, what happens is all of a sudden they realize, I'm made in the image of God. I have, I have value. I'm broken, but my brokenness is healed by Jesus. And then they begin to look at all the people around them in exactly the same way. And they realize... Oh, that person's made in the image of God too, and there's brokenness in them that can only be healed in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapters 2 and 3 are the solution to racism because they give you the gospel of Jesus Christ, reconciling us to God and then reconciling us to one another. That is, any cause without Christ is just like a band-aid on cancer. Christ has to be the center. So maybe it's your family, maybe it's that future family you want, maybe it's your cause, maybe it's your career choice. That's what really grips your heart. You know that there is, in the beautiful sovereignty of God, there's an intersection between your skills and passions and the good of the world and the glory of Jesus Christ. 
But if you pull the pursuit of the glory of Jesus Christ out of that, your life doesn't have eternal significance. But if the glory of Jesus Christ is put at the center of that pursuit, then any task that you do has eternal significance. Now, I want you to take that principle and apply it to everything in your life that you call mine. Everything. That's what it means to put the gospel of Jesus Christ as the center of your life. Yield to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what John the Baptist said. He must increase, but I must decrease. Uh, anybody watch uh, back in the spring the uh, Winter Olympics, 2018 Winter Olympics? Right? Anybody watch that? Man, I, I was on all the time. I love Winter Olympics, probably because I, I grew up in the snow. Uh, do you remember who won the Winter Olympics? <laughs> it doesn't really matter to you, right? I mean, it, it's, I think it's important. It wasn't the United States of America. Norway. Right, Norway won, which, you know, my Swedish grandmother rolled over in her grave. Ah! Norwegians, I can't believe they won the Olympic. I mean, she would just kill her. The Norwegians, because the Norwegians have historically been dominant in the Nordic sports. Uh, 2016 Summer Olympics. You know who won the Summer Olympics, 2016? Okay, I follow these things, right? United States of America won the Summer Olympics, okay? And there's uh, one sport that we have just completely dominated since 1992, Basketball, right, because in 1992, what did, what did the United States Olympic C- Committee agree to do? We put all our professional athletes into the Olympics, right? They called it the dream team, right? As Michael Jordan was on the team and Scottie Pippen, Matt, Magic Johnson, uh, David Robinson, everyone who was on that team is now in the Hall of Fame, right? So in 1992, we just crushed the world in basketball. 2004... Athens Games, another dream team. Best individual basketball players in the world were on the United States of America team. You know what what medal we won? Barely bronze. Best individual athletes, but they didn't function as a team. Because their, their goal was to win a gold medal for themselves. So they weren't the best team. They were the best individuals, but they weren't the best team. Because they were not unified. They were not unified. Biblical unity doesn't mean that we always get along. (laughs) It's impossible. It just doesn't happen. Uh, It doesn't mean that we we never have conflict. We will. But it means that in the midst of our conflict, we forgive one another because we've yielded our lives to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the center of our lives. And since Christ has forgiven us, we have to forgive one another because we are pursuing Jesus Christ together. What makes us one is when we put the gospel at the center, right? If the gospel is at the center of your life and my life and everyone's life here in this room and we're all pursuing the gospel of Jesus Christ together, you know what's going to happen? We'll just look up and say, oh my goodness, we're one. We will become one because the gospel is center. And Paul says, we become one and the gospel, the power of it flows out through us and in our own lives when we yield our lives to the gospel. Second, when we yield our lives to one another. Read with me chapter 2 and verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. When we yield our lives to one another, notice what Paul says. It's pretty dramatic. It's pretty bold here. He says, do nothing from selfishness. Really, Paul, can I do a few things? Just a little bit of selfishness? No, I want you to do nothing. Do absolutely nothing from selfishness or literally vain, empty glory. Grabbing something that's empty for yourself. Do nothing. And he, he lists a series of contrasts, the things that will destroy our unity and the things that will build our unity. Don't live out of selfishness and, and empty conceit, but instead with humility of mind. Okay, mark it because it's that same word again. Let this be the orientation of your life, others. Let this be the orientation of your lives, others. Acts chapter 2 verse 44 describes the birth of the early church. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. At that first day of the birth of the church, you had thousands of people in Jerusalem who were all pursuing their own personal interests. And then they believed in Jesus. And they turned toward the gospel. And they realized, I mean, it was a miraculous work of the Spirit of God. They realized in that moment that all that they possessed was just a gift from God to be shared with others. And they considered one another as more important than themselves. Read that again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. That is, let this be the orientation or the fixation of your entire life, that others are more important than you. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This was Paul's concern everywhere he addressed the church. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Through love, serve one another. Verse, chapter 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The word for subject is submit. It means literally to place under. He's saying, all of you, this is the way that we become unified with one another. We put ourselves under others. That is not putting ourselves down, but putting ourselves under others so that we can lift up the needs and the desires and the longings of others. That's genuine humility. Not putting myself down, but lifting others up. Let me give you a few illustrations. I, I, you know, I don't have the data on this, and if you've been around for a while, you know I love, I love data illustrations. I don't have any, but I'm, so I'm just going to make, uh, this is just conjecture. I suspect that uh, Americans' least favorite road sign is yield. Okay? <laughs> just because we, we don't like giving in. We, we like defending our rights. I mean, that's, that is a national value. Paul here is not talking about defending the rights of the vulnerable in society. He's talking about, in your interpersonal relationships, yielding your rights. So let me illustrate. My right to good parking on Sunday morning. Let me give you a few churchy illustrations to start with, right? I, 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 I'm just noting that you've yielded that right if you worship at Grace Bible Church Anderson. You've yielded that first right. My, my right to good parking on Sunday morning. My right to worship as I prefer to worship. We do give a lot. Uh, students, I, I want you to know that um, the older adults here at Grace Bible Church yield a lot to you on purpose, because they believe in investing the life of this church in the next generation. And so they yield song choice and instrumental choice and volume to you. Uh, we had uh, one of our elders years ago, uh, he, he hated our music. Uh, he called it Hail Bale. 
But he loved it that the students came. And so he would sit and he would celebrate because he believed in the next generation. So he yielded. We have uh, a group of uh, older gentlemen who often will sit in the back during the worship and they'll have their cup of coffee and the worship finishes and they come in. And they're not angry and frustrated. They're happy to yield. Why? Because they believe in the next generation. That's what we're about as a church. And students, it's probably not loud enough for you. I get it. But you have to yield a little bit too. That's what it means to learn to live within the body of Christ. Uh, Yield my right to have my people prioritized by the church, which you may say, you know, that's my children or youth. Or as a college student, you may say, uh, that's me. Or you may say, no, that's me myself because I pay the bills here, right? Yield your right. My right to expect someone to ask my forgiveness first. My right to be thanked, praised, acknowledged, and treated with respect. My right to be married. My right to have my needs met by my spouse. My right to have control over my own schedule. My right to have control over my own money. My right to pursue my own interests. My right to be right. Now imagine what would it be like if you yielded all of those rights to one another for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the greatest barrier to the advancement of the gospel is not persecution. Paul just proved that. He's sitting in prison and the gospel's going out. The greatest barrier to the gospel has never been persecution. It's never been what the world is doing to us from the outside. It's what's happening inside. It's, it's disunity. And what causes disunity? When I think about myself first. So, We become one, and the gospel moves out through us when we yield our lives to one another. Third, when we yield our lives like the Son of God. Chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I have a a puzzle up here, Um, thousand pieces, uh, it's in a Ziploc bag, and um, during the rest of the service, I'm going to ask my friend Jerry if he could to do this puzzle for us. Jerry, it's going to be a little bit hard to get that puzzle done, and and you know why? Well, first of all, it's a thousand pieces, and you've only got... Uh, 15 minutes, right? Or, no, but really, it's because he doesn't have a picture. It's a thousand pieces, and he doesn't... What's this thing supposed to look like when it's finished? And if you look at all those individual little pieces, all you're seeing is a little bit of color splash here and there, but you don't, you don't have an image. So, Jerry, here you go. You can get busy now. There's the, there's the box. It's got the picture, and Jerry, you can just spread it out there on the floor. He's got an image now, right? That's what Paul is doing for us in chapter 2, 5 through 8. Oh... Hey, if you're going to pour it out, get busy. No, I'm just... He, he, poured, he poured out my puzzle. Just FYI, Jerry, uh, years ago, was a fellow in our church, and he used to always tell our elders that he wrote my sermons. This is not out of character. Okay. Chapter 2, 5 through 8 is in the form of a poem or a hymn. 
It's probably something that the Philippian believers knew by heart. It's, it's really beautiful, but it's packed with theology. It's probably the most dense statement of Christology in the entire Bible. But Paul didn't include it for theology. He cl- included it for example or illustration. This is what our lives should look like if we want to experience the power of God in us and through us to the nations. Right? So he includes this example of Christ for this, give us this, this picture. This is what your life should look like. This is what your life could look like. And when it does, the gospel is going to be powerful in you and through you. In a couple of uh, verses, he's going to use Timothy and Epaphroditus and then himself also as examples, but he starts with Jesus. So I want you to notice three things that Jesus yields. Okay, first, he yielded his divine prerogatives. Chapter 2, verse 5. Or his divine privileges, excuse me. Paul writes... Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, mark it again. It's the same word. Let the preoccupation, the fixation, the orientation of your life be exactly the same as that of Jesus Christ. He yielded his divine privileges. Verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right? It's written for illustration, but I, I have to unpack a little bit of the theology here. Notice the first phrase. He says... Who, although he existed. That's a present participle, and it's important. Sorry for the grammar moment, but it's important, okay? Present participle means this. Who existing. For all of eternity, the Son of God existed. There never was a time when he was not. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God always. Who existing in the form of God? Now, in English, we hear that word form, and it sounds like, well, kind of like, but not really. But in Greek, it means really the exact representation. It means who God is in his essence. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, and he is the Son. He, the Son, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Or as Jesus would say to his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So who, although existing as God forever, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The connotation could be, well, he didn't have it and he had to go get it. That's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is, he didn't regard his equality with God, which he had for all of eternity, something that he had to use for his own advantage. He didn't regard his equality with God a grasping thing because that's not the nature of God. God isn't a grasper. God is a giver by nature, which is the exact opposite of every other concept of God in the world. Every other concept of a ruler or a leader. When we have power, what do we do? We use it to our own advantage. And what it's saying is this, this equality with God that the Son of God had for all of eternity He didn't cling to it. He didn't hold to it. He didn't feel like it was necessary to use to his own advantage. He yielded all of his divine privileges. Second, he yielded like a slave. But instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself not of deity, but he poured himself out. When it says he emptied himself, it means he he poured himself out. And he he emptied himself, in a sense, really by taking something else on, which was human nature. 
Right? So the eternal Son of God, fully God, having the nature of God for all of eternity, took on a second nature, which is the nature of man. He's the only person who has two natures. One person, two natures. Divine nature, complete and full. Human nature, complete and full. In theology, we call it the hypostatic union. One person, two natures, wed together. His emptying himself was to take on human nature. With, with all of its struggles, he felt physical pain. He felt physical hunger. He felt physical thirst. Why? So that he could die. But he took on human nature so that he could die. Notice Paul says uh, not just uh, the likeness of men, but actually he took on the form of the lowliest in our society, that is, that of a slave. As Jesus would say to his disciples, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Third, he yielded to the point of death. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a cross death. The Roman writer Cicero wrote years ago, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed as crucifixion. And yet, the creator of the universe was crucified. Beaten, stripped completely naked, nailed to a cross, and hung in humiliation until he suffocated and died. Not just humility, humiliation. He chose to lay aside those divine privileges. As he was arrested, one of his disciples pulled out a sword and he said, put it away. Do you have any idea that at this moment I could call 10,000 warrior angels? Rome has no power over me. The Jewish authorities have no power over me. I'm yielding. But he yielded his life so that we could have life. A friend of mine illustrated it this way. And uh, I'm, I recognize that this is an inadequate illustration because uh, the ladder isn't high enough, but we do have liability issues. Right? So, um, you know, it's like this. Jesus Christ. High and exalted. All of the angels bowing before him. Worshipping him. All of heaven doing his will. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. He came down from all of that privilege. And he took on the form of a man. No, he took on the form of a slave. And as a slave, he gave his life in the cruelest of death, in crucifixion. He gave his life for us. No one took his life from him. No one had the power to do that. Because he had all power. And he had all authority And he chose to set it aside so that we could have life. And Paul says, live like that. You want to experience the power of the gospel in your life? Live like that. You want to experience the power of the gospel through your life? Live like that. Church, we want to experience the power of God flowing through us as the body of Christ to the nations? We live like that. Notice, 
The hymn ends like this, verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is, Jesus ascended because God said, Well done. Well done. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he exalted the Son again so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or as it says in Hebrews, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father, having received his reward that all nations would worship before him. And then he says to us, church, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So that he may exalt you at the proper time. That is, this is the glory that Jesus wants to share with you. So, live like this. Live like this. Uh, My daughter, uh, when she was little, we gave her a piggy bank. i got a picture of it back there, Gary, if you can put that up in case you can't see it from the back. Uh, It says, joy, Jesus, others, you. And uh, we gave my son one as well. Uh, His was in the form of a bank. Hers is in the form of Joy, because her name is Anna Joy. And we thought, okay, we got a little clever little thing there to kind of stick, right? Uh, Jesus, others, you. And when she was little and we gave this to her, we had to have a discussion about why we would put anything in the J and the O, right? <laughs> why, not? why not put everything in the Y? Really? If Jesus isn't the center of your life, then you're not going to put anything here or here. You just put it here. So, so why do that? Um, Because someday, all that will matter to you is bowing before Jesus Christ. That's it. That is all that will matter. And, you know, it's hard to absorb that now. It's hard to, oh, man, but I'm living right now in this world. But it's a step of faith. That someday, that's all that will matter. And you will be so glad that you gave all of your life to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you gave yourself to others. And you poured out your rights and sacrificed And the the paradox is that actually you can begin to experience it right now. If you take that risk and you begin to pour out your life for others, you experience a joy that you can't find anywhere else. If you grasp, your life will get really small and selfish and your heart will shrink and you won't have joy. And so Jesus says, just trust me. It really is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to grasp. Follow me in this. Follow this and experience a power that you can't experience anywhere else in your life and through your life. Okay, as we close, we're going to celebrate uh, communion together. If I could get the servers to go back um, and choir if you want to come up. And as uh, we're being served, I want you just to, uh, to spend a little bit of time thinking, is there an area in your life where you are grasping and not giving? And is there an area of your life where God is calling you to yield? And it might be, Uh, your status, your career, your hopes and dreams for the future, your family, something that God is saying, yield that to me. Yield that to me and experience life. The reason that we get to be here in this moment and we celebrate communion together is because Jesus yielded. We are about to enjoy bread, which represents his body, and a cup, which represents his blood, that he poured out for us because he yielded. And so let's just take a few moments and thank Jesus for doing that for us. And let God's Spirit speak. Are there areas in our life where we need to open our hands and yield?
Okay. If I can't have the servers come forward, we'll wait till everyone is served and then we'll take the bread and the cup together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was uh, praying before his father and we're told sweat came down like drops of blood. And he said, Father, if you can cause this, this cup to pass from me, that is the cup of suffering and, and separation, if you can get your will accomplished to redeem mankind by any other way, that's what I, that's what I long for. And yet, not my will but yours be done. And he, he yielded his life to the will of the Father so that we could have life. And he illustrated that for his disciples when he took bread and he broke the bread and said, this bread is my body, my body that will be broken for you. Let's take the bread together. And he also took the cup as a symbol saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood must be poured out to forgive your sins. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, thank you for yielding your life to the will of the Father so that we could have life. We thank you for that. We celebrate that. We pray that that moment would never be far from our our hearts and our memories. In fact, may that reminder of the message of the gospel be at the very center of our lives. Jesus, thank you that you have given us hope and confidence. We have life that will be with you forever. I pray that we would have courage to set aside our lesser pursuits and put the very gospel message of Jesus Christ at the center of our lives. Father, I pray that we would have courage to serve one another, to to yield to one another, that the world would look in and they would see our unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'd be drawn to him and say, yeah, I need that. I need that solution in my life. Father, I pray that you would make us powerful in the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Put Christ at the center. We'll see you next week.